and welcome to Bunker Start Your Week. I'm Roz Taylor. Just how much will a man do to hang on to power? We may well find out this week as Vladimir Putin plays cat and mouse with Ukraine and Boris Johnson waits for Sue Gray to deliver the report on lockdown partying at number 10. Joining me is Arthur Snell, security consultant and ex-foreign office man. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Roz. First off, what's going on with the Foreign Office and Ukraine? Because the Foreign Office put out a press release that said Russia was planning to install a pro-Kremlin government in Ukraine, but that was greeted with some scepticism. What did you think about it? Well, this was very odd. It was released on uh, Saturday evening, so very much hoping to land on the front pages of the Sunday papers. It was a brief press release which as you said, said that Russia is planning to in, install a new government in Ukraine on the face of it, very believable, and named certain people who would form part of this government. And those who know more about these things than I do very quickly looked at who these people were and, and could see that they were not remotely credible figures. Uh, most of these people are actually out of Ukraine in exile in Russia because they've been so sort of extreme in their anti-Ukrainian positions. So On the one hand, it's very easy to sort of fall into a cynical response and say, well, Britain has been not making the running on the Ukraine crisis. The prime minister is obviously obsessed with the Sue Gray issue for various reasons best known to themselves. Both the foreign and defence secretaries were in Australia, so they missed various key meetings on on Ukraine. And is this an attempt by Britain to get back in the game? I think it might well be. But having said that, that doesn't mean that the underlying facts are not correct. So what we've seen a lot of is various powers, but notably the US and the UK, have been flaunting their intelligence on Ukraine. And I think there's a very specific reason for this. The Russians have a track record of using uh, their considerable intelligence and sort of special services subterfuge, basically, to get these conflicts going. And if you think about what happened in Georgia, they sort of confected a casus belli and then invaded the country. In Crimea, they'd basically seized the whole Crimean Peninsula before anyone realised. So I think what's happening is that Western countries, particularly US and UK, are trying to put as much out there into the public domain so it makes it much harder for the Russians to spring a surprise. So Dominic Raab made some defensive noises over the weekend, but he did confirm that Britain wouldn't actually send troops to Ukraine if it's invaded, though we have, haven't we, been sending weaponry of various kinds. And Ukraine, of course, isn't a NATO member, but that didn't stop the alliance intervening in Kosovo and Libya, did it? Is there a possibility that NATO could in some way become involved? I think it's vanishingly unlikely. I think, one, because unlike Kosovo and Libya, If you're facing the Russian army, uh, the massed tanks, the increasingly sophisticated air force and a highly trained and motivated, certainly the elite forces, I don't think any NATO uh, country, even the most hawkish, wants to get into that. And in a way, that's kind of the point that Russia is doing this because Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So if we then end up getting into a war with Russia when they're not even a member of NATO, it slightly sort of upends the whole NATO concept. But having said all of that, that doesn't restrict the degree to which countries might choose to offer very fulsome support. So we've already seen the pictures of the the British uh, sort of RAF delivering the anti-tank weapons. 
I know that Canada, which of course has a very large Canadian Ukrainian population, and therefore you know this is a highly political question in Canada. They've got um, various people on the ground, and they've been offering different sorts of support. But fundamentally, NATO is very split. You've had the head of uh, the German Navy has had to resign because of uh, comments that he made, effectively taking Russia's side, and Germany more generally is very conflicted on this with their reliance on on the gas supplies. You've got other NATO countries, including France, taking a slightly unclear line. So one of the things that Russia has consistently been able to do is take advantage of uh, European and Western divisions, and they're doing it this time as well. I wanted to ask you about that because Putin will be trying to calculate whether the EU's threat of sanctions, how much heft there is behind that and whether they could do that. Do you think the EU could come together and enforce effective sanctions against Russia? Well, I guess the key word there is effective. The EU, of course, already has some sanctions on Russia. I'm sure it will always be possible to come up with another package. Clever people in Brussels who who draw up fiendishly complex regulations, no doubt, could come up with a package of sanctions. But are these sanctions that really hit them where they hurt? And I think, actually, whilst the EU is terribly important here, this is where the UK really needs to get its house in order. Because we all know that the prime properties in London, the the public schools in the home counties, the offshore banking facilities dotted around what used to be the British Empire, this is where Russian dirty money goes to hide. And Yes, of course, that's something to do with sanctions, but a lot of it is to do with basic enforcement regimes. We already have laws about money laundering in this country, and we don't really enforce them. So this is definitely on the EU, but it's also on the UK to take a hard look at how the Russian elite avails itself of uh, Western jurisdictions. That could be bad news for some of Britain's top public schools then. Yes, they'll probably fall over overnight. It's hard to get a sense of public opinion in Russia for all kinds of reasons. How much face does Putin lose at home if he backs down now and doesn't invade Ukraine? Well, it's a very interesting question. I was actually talking to a a Russian colleague based in the UK about this the other day. His view was that there are very few downsides for Putin if he carries on with a military operation up until the point that there are major casualties. Now, of course, the Russians are quite good at hiding the casualties. They've been doing that with people dying in in Donbass, in in the part of Ukraine that's already been invaded by Russia. We, We mustn't forget that Ukraine was invaded in 2014 and remains part of it under occupation. The Russian system is good at weaponizing these sorts of conflicts in a way that bigs up Putin and and, and his reputation. But even if they don't get to a a hot war, I think at the moment, Putin is getting a lot of benefits from this because basically he is currently the most important man on planet Earth. People are beating a path to his door in Moscow. The world is having summits. Everything is about Russia. No one can be in any doubt that Russia at the moment is a global superpower. And that is exactly what Putin wants. There is a degree to which if he doesn't eventually launch a a fighting war, he may be able to portray it that he stood up to the West and the West backed down. Now, of course, that depends on what eventually takes place. and, and, And that's sort of unknowable at this stage. Let's go to another man who would be world king, but maybe now his chances of doing that are dwindling Boris Johnson. Today, the Sugre inquiry is continuing, expected to report towards the end of this week. And I believe Dominic Cummings is being interviewed today by her. She has also, according to the papers, been talking to the Met Police, who are 
guard number 10 to find out what they know, though they don't have to cooperate with her. And there were reports over the weekends that she was investigating even more parties, this time hosted by Carrie Johnson in the Downing Street flat. There's another larger scandal to have emerged involving the MP Nusrat Ghani over the weekend. She says she was sacked because she was regarded as too Muslim. Of course, this is another strong criticism of the way that the whips have been behaving in the Conservative Party. Boris Johnson has quickly launched another inquiry into what Nusrat Ghani's allegations are. Is this even more damaging to him? I think it certainly is, but I'm not sure how much space there is in the public consciousness for the huge avalanche of scandals that involve Boris Johnson. Obviously, people who are very interested in politics will have seen this Lusrat Ghani story, and many aspects of it seem to click with the Boris Johnson we know. He seems to flirt with Islamophobia. He's got a, a troubling track record of both the way he deals with women and the way he deals with people from ethnic minorities. And ultimately, he doesn't seem to be someone who deals with difficult problems. So the fact that Nusrat Ghani reported these issues and the prime minister kind of said, well, you have to decide if you want to make something of it or not, i.e. putting it back on her, feels very believable. But I think the big story remains a Sue Gray inquiry. Of course, none of us knows what's in it. But it's very interesting how long it is taking. That suggests this is a big piece of work. This is not just about one drinks party in the garden on a particular day. Now, there are one or two unnamed sources talking to journalists. And of course, you have to be very cautious about how much you take credence of those saying that this this report is going to be terminal for Johnson that it could actually end his premiership. So it is quite possible that all the seemingly rather obvious issues that are there, the fact that it's impossible to believe that he didn't know it was a party, the basic atmosphere that engenders around Johnson, uh, one commentator call it government as a stag do, you can sort of see that all coming to a head. And it may be that put on paper, this is just something that it's, it's impossible to tough your way out. But of course, I don't think anyone would cling harder to power than Boris Johnson. On the other hand, he does have half of the press at least still on his side. The Sun, the Mail, the Telegraph, the Express, they all continue to back him. And he does, as you say, seem absolutely determined to cling on to power. Does he have, do you think, a strategy to keep it? Is he hoping that maybe 54 MPs will send in their letters, trigger a vote of no confidence, but ultimately he might win that vote of confidence and potentially be immune from another one for a year? Is that perhaps what's in his mind? I've been thinking about this. It might be that strategy is a strong word, but uh, a sort of certain rat-like cunning uh, <laughs> might be driving his, his thinking. It seems to me, if we think back to Theresa May, a, a lot of people forget that uh, it wasn't a vote of no confidence that did for her. She resigned in the end because she felt the pressure was intolerable. The difference might be someone who's got no sign of any self-awareness, he may decide that the pressure is tolerable. It's quite easy to imagine that even if that no confidence threshold is reached, uh, the 54 letters famously, he could survive that vote. And then, as you say, he's then got another year. People often talk about the men in grey suits and, and all these other sort of behind the scenes players that can bring pressure on a Conservative Party leader. But actually, if the Prime Minister has decided he's going nowhere, he's going to tough it out and he's going to let the scandal subside, 
then he could do that. And if you look at Boris's track record throughout his life, whether as a politician or in his earlier life as a journalist, he's encountered many major scandals that would have destroyed the careers of people with a sense of ethics and, and uh, personal reputation. But ultimately, if you have no personal ethics, you can tough these things out. COVID briefly. NHS staff who haven't got vaxxed have less than two weeks to get it done now or they will be sacked. And there are apparently 52,000, according to Channel 4, who don't have a medical exemption. And I think about 7 to 8% of NHS staff in London will reportedly have to go. Do you think the government will risk having to sack all these workers or will it do a last minute U-turn so that it doesn't? If you think about the pressures on the NHS, uh, particularly in London, the idea that you would suddenly remove a few thousand frontline health workers on what is undoubtedly an important and I think for most people feels like a perfectly sensible policy. Nonetheless, it's very hard to imagine that happening. What I think is likely to, to unfold here is that when it comes to the crunch, of course, on the morning of April the 1st, which I think is the deadline, I don't think we would then expect the immediate sacking of all these people. And of course, it's a public sector employer. People have all kinds of employment rights. There would be tribunals and reviews. And so I think it's it's very realistic to expect that even before the government has to change any policy, what you're actually looking at is months of tortuous HR processes where people are asked to explain their choices and update their HR manager and all that kind of stuff. Whilst it's undoubtedly a serious issue, and I think for a lot of people it seems a bit inexplicable that someone who works on the front line in healthcare chooses not to avail themselves of a tried and tested vaccination, I don't think it's going to lead to this this sort of bizarre situation of us losing lots of medical professionals. Well, that's somewhat reassuring. Well, I have to say, given the choice of having another vaccine or encounter with HR, I know which I would go for. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Afghanistan, where, of course, you have worked in the past. Things are getting very bad there. The famine is taking hold. There's a letter in The Guardian today from various experts on Afghanistan, people who've been involved there saying we must act now. What can we do, if anything? So the, the letter in The Guardian, it, it's worth a read uh, for those who've taken an interest in this. It comes from uh, a pretty prestigious lineup of, of former diplomats and national security types in the UK. And what they're saying is basically we need to get aid into Afghanistan. And that involves getting aid through the Afghan government as well as direct through humanitarian channels. Importantly, what these people are saying is that there's no need to recognise the Afghan government. And that's in, that seems a, a, a sensible situation, given that the Taliban, you know, seized power violently and have oppressed women and have carried out massacres and all the things that we know about. But ultimately, what we're looking at, if aid doesn't start to flow in serious quantities, is a major famine in Afghanistan. And one of the things that's important to remember is that Throughout the period of the NATO intervention in Afghanistan, there has not been a time when Afghanistan was able to stand on its own two feet economically. It has always been heavily reliant on foreign aid. There's all kinds of reasons for that. It's a country that's been through decades of war. It's an inhospitable environment. There are all kinds of challenges. In a way, it's not surprising. If you suddenly switch off the aid that's flowing into Afghanistan 
and sort of walk away, it is not surprising that you end up with a huge crisis. So basically, what needs to happen is that the international community needs to start dealing with the Taliban. They don't need to recognize them. They need to deal with them in a way that is perhaps at a sort of third hand so that they don't seem to give them endorsement or credibility. But if you don't do this, people are going to start dying in their thousands and possibly millions. It is a serious and sobering news week. I just wanted to end with something slightly lighter, the news that a robot vacuum cleaner has escaped from Travelodge in Cambridge, which caused a great deal of excitement. This this thing apparently went out of the door of the Travelodge, and there was a lot of talk about nature abhorring a vacuum, which makes some sense. But the reassuring news is that it was eventually found under a hedge and returned to its home. Arthur, do you have a robot vacuum cleaner? I don't. And and um, having seen this story, it's probably a good thing because our house is next to a, a, a little stream. And I can imagine the robot vacuum cleaner driving out of the door and landing in the stream. And I imagine that these expensive devices don't deal very well with them um, being submerged in water. But I, I think it's a lovely story. It, there's, short, there's got to be a Pixar movie coming out of this, <laughs> a, a world in which a brave little <laughs> robot vacuum cleaner goes out and, you know, discovers the, 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 the big, big wide world out there with sort of cute big eyes and all the rest of it. I, I can see the kids will love it. Yeah, it makes friends with all the animals in the garden. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. And that's the end of Start Your Week. Thanks for joining me, Arthur. Uh, It was great. Thanks a lot. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you like, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Uh-huh.